0: If there is no struggle,
1: there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning.
0: They want the ocean without the awful roar. The
2: awful roar, the awful roar of, of, its of its many, many waters. Water. This struggle may be a moral one,
1: or it may be a physical one, or It It may may be be both both moral moral and and physical, physical. but it must be. It must be a struggle. But it must be a struggle.
0: No struggle.
1: No No progress. Frederick Douglass, orator and abolitionist, a man who needs no introduction. He teaches us that every real gain in the history of human progress has been born of earnest struggle. This show is devoted to celebrating his life, but it's also devoted to taking a hard look at the state of our own earnest struggle for racial equality and human liberation. Coming up...
2: The told story of Frederick Douglass is the untold story of the family.
1: We speak with Celeste Marie Bernier, author of the new book, If I Survive, Frederick Douglass and Family in the Walter O. Evans Collection. The
2: sacrifice of the father was the sacrifice of the
1: daughters and sons and of the wife of Frederick Douglass. He didn't sacrifice alone. And we speak with Walter Evans himself about what motivated him to collect the documents that form the
0: basis for the new book. I want the public to know what I didn't know. Or could not have known.
1: All that and more on this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. Thanksgiving, a holiday for enjoying food and being with family. It's a tradition as old as the country itself, we're told. But what many don't know is that it was President Abraham Lincoln who issued the first in a long line of yearly proclamations establishing a Thanksgiving Day in November. The year was 1863. Lincoln's proclamation reads, In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict while that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. Lincoln called on his fellow citizens to give thanks for these blessings, but also to pray for those who, quote, have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged. I think it's fair to say the view from the front lines of that civil strife was often less hopeful than the proclamation from Washington, D.C. made it out to be. In South Carolina that very same year, the country's first African-American regiment, the 54th Massachusetts, led a failed attack on Fort Wagner.
0: I love the 54th. Yes. Right. Right.
2: Y'all's the only family I got. Well, ain't much a matter what happened tomorrow, but we men, ain't we? Yes, sir. The
1: lead-up to that desperate battle is dramatized in the 1989 film, Glory.
2: If tomorrow we have to meet the judgment day, uh, Heavenly Father, we want you to let our folks know uh, that we died facing the enemy.
1: Frederick Douglass' oldest son, Louis Henry, fought in the Battle of Fort Wagner. In a stolen moment between charges, the 23-year-old Douglass writes a letter to his sweetheart back in Syracuse. My dear Amelia, I have been in two fights and am unhurt. I'm about to go in another, I believe, tonight. Our men fought well on both occasions. The last was desperate. We charged that terrible battery on Morris Island known as Fort Wagoner and were repulsed with a loss of 300 killed and wounded. I escaped unhurt from amidst that perfect hail of shot and shell. It was terrible. Douglas continues, Should I fall in the next fight, killed or wounded? I hope to fall with my face to the foe. If I survive... I shall write you a long letter. Remember, if I die, I die in a good cause. These are the words that provided the inspiration for a new book entitled If I Survive, Frederick Douglass and Family in the Walter O. Evans Collection. The lead author of that book is Celeste Marie Bernier. She's a professor of Black Studies and English Literature at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. She's the author of many other books as well on topics ranging from Black heroism to Black visual art. Back in September, Bernier visited Rochester, where I had a chance to sit down with her and talk about this latest project. Celeste, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thank
2: you so much for having me, Darian. It's a joy. It's a joy. Thank you so much.
1: So we're lucky to have this chance to sit down with you while you're on this whirlwind tour of the United States here. It's a two and a half week tour, right? You're visiting some of the main sites that were important to Frederick Douglass during his life. Can you just talk about what are some of the conversations that you've had in these, um, specifically the public lectures that you've given in these communities that are so invested in celebrating Douglass in this bicentennial of his birth?
2: So um, I've spent 20 years of my life researching into the life and works of Frederick Douglass and his family and working across academic activist um, artist contexts. And the question at the heart of that is how do we use words and art in the freedom struggle? And what I really want to do with this book and this archive, making it accessible, is really um, Kamal McLaren described it as a book that's about helping other people be the historians. And what I find is when I go and tell these stories, whether it's it's in Britain or it's in the United States, they show me how to see it and how to read it. I'm, I'm pressed up close to it, like my face to the glass, and I find that people coming with their own experiences, their own life stories, they see different aspects. The conversations have really been about what Douglas means now, what he's meant in the past. And what I've mostly found is people are just so full of happiness to hear about the family that I'm wanting to know what they did, why they did it, and how they did it. So it's been um, really an experience of love, I think, and healing to talk about the family and to begin to try and piece together their stories.
1: Let's talk about the book in a little more detail. First of all, the title, If I Survive, right? Frederick Douglass and Family. Um, Where does that phrase come from? And how does it orient uh, your reading of the documents in your book?
2: if I survive are actually the words from Lewis Henry Douglas um, Frederick Douglass's eldest son who as we know fought in the Civil War and fought beside Robert Gould Shaw with the 54th Massachusetts Um, and the big issue we all know we all of us in the United States know that Frederick Douglass born into slavery as Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey survived the scars of slavery we all know that and we all know that he only barely survived them because he carried his life all his life the physical and psychological um, wounds of that struggle. What we know less about are that his sons fought and struggled with the wounds of war. And what I wanted to really make clear in the book is that the sacrifice of the father was the sacrifice of the daughters and sons and of the wife of Frederick Douglass. He didn't um, sacrifice alone. And so Lewis writes this beautiful letter, which is the reason why I wrote the book. And I shouldn't have written the book because I've got six other deadlines. It was a book I didn't mean to write, but why he made it so I couldn't not write it, is he wrote to the love of his life, Amelia Loguan, from the Civil War front lines, and he said, If I survive, I will write you a long letter. If I die, remember I die in the cause of freedom. And so I wanted the book to be an honouring of their struggle. Um, the I'm I'm in a way following in the footsteps of the Douglas family themselves. They were their own historians. They knew they would be written out of history, and Lewis, the same man who said, If I Survive also said, No one knew the anxiety, hardships, and distresses we went through in the struggle for freedom. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how the title came to life, really. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, I know this book is organized uh, very tightly around some of the documents that you had access to um, in a private collection. We'll talk about that private collection in a moment. Um, But some of the themes that I've heard you draw out uh, from these documents are mortality, uh, memory, and the blurb for the book says that. The Frederick Douglass that is needed in a 21st century Black Lives Matter era is no infallible icon, but a mortal individual
2: can talk about that. Um, The reason behind that statement is um, a question I get repeatedly in 20 years is how did Mr. Douglas do it on his own? And the answer is he didn't. (laughs) And it doesn't make him any less great, any less inspirational, and any less powerful. But what it does in 2018 is when I go to audiences in schools, I go to audiences in churches, um, I go to non-academic audiences that are not steeped in white Western paradigms of learning, they're very much about, this is a Douglas you can work with, a Douglas who collaborates. But it's not a Douglas we know so well, because we see the distant public figure. And behind
1: that public figure was an equally inspiring private person. So, I mean, is there a tension there? Um, Douglas so carefully curated his public face, because there were so many constant attempts to subvert him. What harm does it do to have a powerful hero symbol, particularly in this day and age?
2: The, there were so many Frederick Douglases, and um, that by necessity and by design, Douglass's survival practice, and this is a book about survival, um, involves a range of tactics, some of them immortalizing, some of them mythologically transformative, and some of them emotionally expedient that have damage, that causes damage, not only to the person, but to all family members. Um, Living with that public icon um, is, is devastating and difficult. And the family letters talk about the burden, talk about the inspiration, talk about the beauty and magic of it, but talk about the real struggle that comes from it as well. And it was a struggle for all the family members the, and I think it, the heart of it really was that they all sacrificed their emotional and personal and autobiographical um, priorities for the freedom struggle. The freedom struggle came first. Yeah.
1: I want to ask you about some of those specific documents in which you see instances of this. Um, But could you first give us an overview of the collection that you drew on for this project? This is a private collection that's held in Savannah, Georgia by a man named Walter O. Evans. Tell us a little bit about him and tell us a little bit about the scope of these materials that you drew on.
2: So meeting Dr. Walter Evans um, changed my life. (laughs) And doing this book changed my life. Um, In my 20 years, I've never seen a collection like it and Dr. Evans is a retired surgeon so he worked for 25 plus years in Detroit um, running a surgical practice and at the same time that he was running that practice he started buying and looking at and researching um, first edition books by enormously important figures like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and he's obviously world famous as an art collector. Now in many ways Dr. Evans is carrying on Mr. Douglas's life because he believes that art and language is a talisman to power and is a way of visualizing and writing back to white racist dispossession. And so he... Um, talks about the importance in school environments in his own family of the honoring of black heroic figures in history and then talking about going to art galleries and seeing no representation on the walls so for dr. Evans the and all major um, pioneering inspirational collectors like him it's really about collecting an archive in the face of a white supremacist archive that denies distorts invisibilizes and dehumanizes and so for dr. Evans his paintings by Jacob Lawrence are on a continuous with his manuscripts by Frederick Douglass. They are all part of the memorializing the black freedom struggle and what it means and how important it is. And as Mr. Douglass would say, education is emancipation. So the Douglass collection is is where I focus my, my energy on this. And I opened these binders, Darien, And I knew the minute I opened them that was it. You know, the literary biography I'm writing for Yale. Um, (laughs) I promise it is a priority, but it took a a back seat when I saw this material. And I saw the handwriting of Lewis um, Douglas's eldest son writing, "If I survive, um, I die in the cause of humanity from the front lines of the Civil War." Um, And I work on. I've worked. I did a big book on Black soldiers in World War One. And it just wouldn't leave me. So um, after I left the house, I thought, okay, the world needs to, to see this material. And so the collection that Dr. Evans has by the Douglas family, is um, many speeches that Douglas himself gave. So um, phenomenal, phenomenal material. Um, Douglas's lectures on Santo Domingo and Toussaint Louverture's heroism. Douglas meditating on the exodus of the South, whether formerly enslaved people should run or should stay where they are. Um, Douglas's meditation on his problematic relationship with William Lloyd Garrison. As we know, they never reconciled when they di- When he died. Um, and alongside that, the letters he writes his sons from Haiti talking about his political navigation of the U.S. versus the Haitian government um, and his commitment to the freedom struggle in a a Haitian context. Um, You have the Civil War letters of Louis Henry. You have um, letters by Charles Remond, um, his youngest son. Um, One of the most beautiful um, documents in the collection is Charles Remond, the youngest survivor in 1917 telling us the story of the family working on the Underground Railroad. So big idea is that Mr. Douglas is the king of the Underground Railroad, but the Underground Railroad had its queen in Anna Murray, and Mr. Douglas is on the road um, in the antebellum period. He's not really there. She is the one with the sons and daughters who is feeding fugitives coming out of of slavery um, and running it in this phenomenal, inspirational way. Um, We knew that, but we didn't know we knew it until we have these documents to prove it. And Frederick Jr.'s autobiography is in there too, which nearly stopped my heart (laughs) because it tells his story. um, And he had a painful struggle with trying to get employment. Um, And so it really brings the Douglas family to light and life through all these different perspectives. And of course, with Dr. Evans being an art collector, it has a large number of photographs, and they're in the collection as well.
1: And so a lot of these documents... uh, are reproduced in facsimile in your book, and you have explanatory essays around around many of these uh, documents, right?
2: Right. So the the original idea I wanted um, people to be in an affordable book. Um, to have access to full-colour reproductions of everything. And so if you want to ignore our transcripts, which were brilliantly done with Andy Taylor, my co-author, if you want to ignore those, you can, and you can just go straight to the material. But um, what I wanted to do was I felt this material to come to life needed to have some context to tell the stories. But I also wanted it to be, if people had no interest in that, just to feel they could go straight to the documents and explore this inner world of the Douglas family without any scholarly apparatus. So it kind of does two jobs, hopefully.
1: Now, some of these documents that you mentioned, you know, really seem kind of earth shattering. And without wanting you to name names, I heard that, you know, some of your colleagues in the field didn't think that a lot of these documents had a lot of historical value. Can you talk about why? Why? And what is your response to that?
2: Right. It's a a really important question. I think um, there's a kind of there's so many answers to it. Um, I think a short answer is Mr. Douglas takes up so much time. Um, bless his spirit. He, there's so many Mr. Douglases. He wrote over 7,000 items. His correspondence is vast. His oratorical output is vast. His political career is vast. Mm-hmm. So I think he's necessarily taken the eye of the scholarly world. Um, there's obviously masculinity politics embedded in that as well. The heroic masculine icon, which is something he was aware of and um, partly worked with that mythology, partly deconstruct that mythology himself. Can
1: you unpack that a little bit?
2: So I think... The kind of notion of the self-made man is the most famous speech um, that Douglas gives and re-gives and gives a multitude of times, and um, yeah. At the same time, he so on the one hand he exalts this idea of being self-made that you, despite all odds, you become an independent individual thinker that is coded as male because that's the lens he's working through. Um, But at the same time, in the same speech, he will also say, but no one has ever been a self-made man. It's a fiction because you're dependent on biography, on context and life. But that was a a double thinking Douglas had all his life because on the one hand to survive, again, he had to believe in this myth of a self-made man that despite everything, you can make it out in slavery. You can have Cedar Hill, the big house on the hill, you can make it. But at the same same time he knew only too well the hundreds of people that helped him on the road and also honored them but it was a there's a, a complex balancing act between myth and memory and Douglas juggles that because the political myth of Douglas the hyper masculine icon is very important in the freedom struggle in the 19th century and has a real important resonance as a source of inspiration a source of transformation and a source of liberation um, but there are also difficulties with that um, the big issue with the the family story not getting out there is because it's in dr walter evans's phenomenal collection um i think a lot of people have not known that there has been material on the douglas family just practical issues i think there is a sort of um, slowness in the scholarly community to see the importance of the family um, I didn't see it so I'm do I for 20 years was working on Douglas and was exactly the same as everybody else I'm solely focusing on Douglas and I'm failing to look at the family um, and this um, collection was a wake-up call to me now I think the same scholarly community would really what I what I now really want to do is get that material out there and the same scholarly community will have the same epiphany that I did
1: We're talking with Celeste Marie Bernier, professor of Black Studies and English Literature at the University of Edinburgh. We'll be back with more from her in a moment, and we'll hear from Walter O. Evans, the collector whose materials form the basis for Bernier's new book, If I Survive, Frederick Douglass and Family. You're listening to Our Earnest Struggle. We'll be right back. are listening to Our Earnest Struggle. I'm Darian Lehman. We're talking with Celeste Marie Bernier, a professor of Black Studies and English Literature at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. So Celeste, I want to talk with you about Frederick Douglass and Anna Marie Douglass's children. I want to start with Annie Douglass, who was Anna and Frederick's youngest daughter. She died in 1860 here in Rochester, just short of her 11th birthday. Um, Very little is known about her, but in the community here especially, um, she holds a special place in people's imagination, um, not just because of her premature death, but also because Frederick said that she was the light and life of his home, right? You have presented and talked about some incredible uh, letters by Annie Douglas in her own hand. Can you tell us, uh, describe these and talk about what you think the significance of these is? So
2: um, thank you for that question. So I'm so full of joy to hear she has a special place in Rochester. Um, In my opinion, Annie Douglas is the radical freedom fighter at the heart of the Douglas family. Um, We only have her on earth for 10 years, um, but in that time, she makes a seismic difference to the Douglas family in terms of her love and her light, um, as you say, Douglas's phrase about her. Um, Powerfully and coincidentally, Douglas receives news of her death in Scotland. Um, and, and so, whilst he's on the run, um, and he's in a, a, a sort of smaller area of Scotland when he gets this news, and we're working on a, an exhibition that opens in Scotland um, in, at the beginning of October. And um, as a result of that, I was working with one of my PhD students, Nick Batho, and he found um, an undigitized newspaper report that talks about the moment that Mr. Douglas hears. Um, he's just received a telegram um, telling him of Annie's death and how he tries to go on. So any other father may have given up, but Mr. Douglas stands up in front of a crowded church in Paisley and continues to speak. Um, but it's a struggle, and he continues to break down and get up again.
1: Literally break down
2: literally breaks down literally breaks down um and so this builds on phenomenal work other scholars have done like hannah rose murray in tracing everywhere he spoke in scotland how he was committed to the freedom struggle how he's on the run and he's committed to the freedom struggle and if we're talking about the public private douglas the that's where you see them come together in one place and how he still tries um to to carry on Annie Douglas um, lived a life that was too short, <laughs> tragically too short, and there are two letters that survive by her. They're going to be in the, the family writings book that I'm, I'm doing that comes out next year. Um, one is owned by the Library of Congress and one by Moreland Spigarn at Howard University. And these letters, there's only two of them, um, but they are heartbreaking and they're inspiring. She tells her father about how she's worried that his boots are hurting his feet. He had endless trouble. With boots on the tour, whether it was boots in Scotland, boots in um, the U.S., um, he he would moan endlessly about his feet. So she's worried about that. But she also tells him about this anti-slavery speech she's going to give in her school, and she's ten. She's ten. So both the letters um, that survive when she's ten, and she selected um, a little piece that she's going to read out. She's also fluent in German um, at the age of (laughs) ten. Um, and um, she also comically, as a 10-year-old does, says that Rosa, her eldest sister, wants her to write more, but she's got nothing more to say, so she's going she's gonna to stop writing. Um, and the other letter is about her relationship with John Brown. Um, and the reason why I call her the first freedom fighter in the Douglas family, despite her being the youngest, is that she starts young in terms of radical revolution. So at a young age, Rosetta is copy-editing The North Star, Um, she's not even double figures when she's doing that and the little boys are delivering it so they're freedom fighters too but Annie is sitting on John Brown's knee as he's building and designing the subterranean pathway that will lead to freedom and arguably starts the civil war Um, and it's her bricks that he uses to map it out and she writes, the letter she writes just before she dies, and she dies three months later, is the letter that she writes to her father talking about having just learned that John Brown has been hung And she talks about, they took him from the prison, they took him from the jail, and in an open field, they hung him till he was dead. This is a 10-year-old girl telling her father this story while her father is on the run. Um, There's all kinds of brilliant scholars who've theorized her death and how she died. um, And Rosetta, but for me, Rosetta tells it most powerfully. She says she suffered very acutely before she died, and she could not hear or speak. The only last word she said was mother which is a beautiful testament to Anna Murray as her mother in her life. Um, Douglas was devastated, and the Douglas family were devastated. And Charles, the youngest, he says, after that we were at best a dismembered family. Um, because Annie was glue in many ways to the, to the freedom struggle. Um, and her death was of such seismic importance to the family. And uh, for Rosetta, for Douglas himself, for Anna Murray, to for the sons, to to come through that was, was really something else. And it, her kind of struggle also helps us understand... Douglass' own complex relationship with John Brown. Um, as, as we know, he said, I could live for the slave, but John Brown could die for him. Um, and um, it also helps to explain the equivocation that Douglass is understood to have had in relationship to John Brown, because the sons were diehard supporters of John Brown, and they were of age to go off and die with him. And Douglass' um, reluctance to endorse the John Brown Raid, I think stems from, and scholars like Kamal, um, he's undertaken brilliant work on this, understand how important that was and how Douglas didn't want his sons to die and Anna Murray didn't want them to die. Um, and so Annie's influence in the family is is major, and um, I think trying to understand that legacy for understanding the pain of carrying a child that dies too young is at the heart of a great deal of sorrow in the book and was really, um, really tells us a lot about the Douglas family and what they went through.
1: Mm. Douglas's decision to not participate in the raid on Harper's Ferry, uh, if it's the case that you know he didn't want to participate in part because he didn't want to see his sons die, um, what does it say then that, that he was such a proponent of uh, African-American men serving in the Union Army. Can you talk about the long-standing consequences of that kind of heroism that we don't often hear about? We often hear about Lewis Henry's letter from the front lines, right? But we don't hear about the trials and travails that came um, as a result of that military service.
2: Right. It, so it does what it does to every man who fights and every woman who fights. It um, makes them prematurely old, and it causes all kinds of psychological, as you say, and physical wounds. And the Douglas family were no different. Um, Louis Henry and Charles Remond, um carried the memory of the war till the day they died. And Louis Henry died of delayed injuries from the war. He... Suffered excruciating pain that um, he carried all the, all the way through his life um, in the letters that they, the sons write their father they educate him on the cost of war so um, Mr. Douglas went through his own war in slavery um, as we know um, and when he stands up and recruits for the 54th and the 55th he is imbued with this patriotic revolutionary rhetoric give me liberty or give me death um, the sons tell him that they are not being paid the same money. Their sons tell him that they are dying of malnutrition. The sons tell him they are being shot from behind. Um, the sons tell him about the unequal conditions in by white union... Um, Um, generals. And so um, there's, Douglas has two forms of knowledge, the knowledge he knows and the knowledge his sons tell him. And um, the, the struggles they go through, and the letters are really why I did this book Um, in that they talk about um, the um, terrible shackling by white um, Union um, troops of the black men, the way in which they're treated, um, the disrespect, the dehumanization, the threats, even before they get anywhere near the battlefield, um, let alone what the white Confederate armies are doing. Um, And so you see in the letters that fear of death, though you talked about mortality and memory, um, as combined with race prejudice, But you also see... What, so Douglas made it out of slavery by turning his suffering into a talisman of liberation. He turned his pain and his witnessing of family members being raped, murdered and destroyed, and he turned it into a way in which to escape and, and live and survive. Um, for his sons, they similarly took their sense of um, death and pain and worry about dying, and they made it into their own version of the freedom struggle. They turned it into, if I die for this cause of humanity, I do not die in vain. Um, and so they channeled their, they understood that their post-traumatic stress disorder and their psychological cost was necessary in the freedom struggle. And I think all the Douglas family members knew from their father and from their mother that the freedom struggle doesn't come without cost. And you have to be ready to give that in order to be able to augur in um, Lewis's words, a new dawn of freedom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to talk about Rosetta we have a good sense, especially from her her biography of her mother, that the North Star really was a family enterprise, um, but I think there are documents that give us a sense of just how much she, in particular, was um, an intellectual partner of Frederick Douglass um, throughout his career as a, as a publisher, as an editor, um, as a writer. So can you talk a little bit about her as a writer in her own right and the kinds of women who were in what she calls the annals of heroic womanhood, right?
2: I think it's a beautiful question. And I think um, one, one trick I like to play on Douglas scholars is um, I like to read out um, a speech by Rosetta and not tell them who it is. And they always assume it's the father. Um, the syntax, the, the oratory, the imagery, um, the intellectual, philosophical arguing is part and parcel of, of nuts and bolts, Mr. Douglas. Um, one of her beautiful phrases that could be his if we didn't know of it any better is read, reflect act and that's a mantra that she lived by, read, reflect, act. Um, She was um, a powerhouse of intellectual thought, of radicalism, of humanitarianism. Um, Her intellect was, she was his intellectual partner, um, as you beautifully say, Darian. And so the kind of consensus in scholarly terms is often to focus on Helen Pitts Douglas, his second white wife, um, and her role as his secretary. Um, And she herself, was a great intellect as well, a feminist and a radical, and she transcribed, she was amanuensis for him on a lot of his letters from the 1880s onwards, but when you look at the manuscripts and the typescripts, it's Rosetta's handwriting you're seeing in conversation with that of her father's. Um, she, um, as you say, wrote the, the powerful memorial to her mother, um, and she was, I found in a source only a few weeks ago, I'm finding things all the time, um, It's I'm working through this big, giant amount of material I've Gathered, um, she was writing um, what she understood to be a definitive history of Black women's activism. Where it would to God it survives I still hope and pray people keep an eye out in Rochester um, uh, a shout out if you find it let me know um, because she understood she pre- produced her own counterpart to her father's um, commitment to Toussaint Louverture Sengbae Pei um, Madison Washington she wrote the, the, the and delivered speeches we've got any fragments of, of the, what she wrote to Harriet Tubman to Sojourner Truth to Margaret Garner to um, Phyllis Wheatley all the pioneering women womanist radicals um in the early era Um, the sacrifices she made were extensive she's proofreading the North Star from the age of 8 and she as you'll notice it has far less errors than most newspapers of that period she was meticulous and she had terrible problems with cataracts and with eyesight difficulties Um, and um, hunching over the desk and copy editing and proofreading and editing um, Doug's newspapers his own writings um, took its Toll and so by the time that she died, Frederica, her daughter, writes my mother was blind and had lost her sight entirely. Um, and so the the physical stress and strain of um, helping and working and being collaboration with Douglas was, was a powerful one, but one she she Joyously undertook. She had no resentment about that. Um, And what I like to think about if we understand Douglass in masculinity politics, a black womanist feminist was working by his side and helping him every step of the way.
1: Rosetta experienced discrimination, experienced harassment as a black woman. Um, She talks about this in terms of bondage. um, And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about. Um, how she understood, how she made sense of her own unfreedom in relation to that of her father, which she obviously grew up hearing about, knowing about.
2: Right. I mean, I think um, Rosetta's life was one of terrible struggle and trying to be a teacher and get her training. And so the the biggest difficulties that she faced, especially when she moved away, was when she was in Philadelphia for a year. And her letters survived to her father, in which she writes about being in a boarding house. And she just wants to go and mail a letter and she's described as a street runner for wanting to have that freedom Um, and So she was very circumscribed by gender politics. And if we think too of this enormous intellect and this great philosophical and political um, vision that she had, and she shoehorned into um, trying to be a teacher and all the challenges that that have. And she writes to him about money problems, about physical space problems, just wanting to walk down the street. And she says to him, I feel I am myself in bondage. Now, you can imagine how this goes down. (laughs) Douglas's whole life worked by the view that slavery was not a metaphor it was a legal institution. He categorically tells audiences in Scotland, Ireland, England and Wales, here anything is slavery. To be hungry is slavery. To be tired is slavery. Slavery is the legal buying and selling of an individual as property. And he repeatedly reiterates that definition. And we don't have Douglas's letter in reply to Rosetta saying, I feel I am myself in bondage. But we have the letter she writes in response to what he's written to her. And she says, I am well aware, dear father, that my struggles will seem as trifles compared to what you have undergone and what you see a great deal in all of the family members exacerbated by the gender unfreedoms for Rosetta as coded as female is that um, subjugating their own trial and suffering in the to the greater cause of their father's struggle that they don't allow themselves a space to talk about their their pains their suffering even as she's moaning about not being able to post a letter she's well aware that um, her father and what he went through and her family members and their family members and so there is this intergenerational trauma that is laced through the douglas family so the enslaved ancestors legacies that are brought to life by anna murray and by frederick stay with the children and carry with them a sense of they can't complain, they've got to be courageous, they've got to be brave, and they've got to continue fighting despite terrible discrimination and poverty.
1: You know, because we focused so much on Frederick Douglass's trajectory as this m- mythical self-made man, what we don't see in a lot of that is the, is the suffering, right, the destitution of the children. And so that kind of intergenerational struggle, I think, is one that's, that throws into relief just how precarious some of these gains were.
2: I think your reflection is really at the heart of the matter because what your reflection shows us is that a life in emancipation is no emancipation at all. And the big political disagreement that ran along racial lines between Frederick Douglass and abolitionists of Caucasian descent like Garrison and others was that at the moment of um, the Emancipation Proclamation, Garrison closes his shop and says the anti-slavery society is disbanded and Frederick Douglass says your work has just begun. And so this idea that you move from slavery to freedom um, Douglas and everyone around him knew that that was a myth that white folks needed to sleep at night. And actually, slavery and freedom were simultaneous, continuous states of existence. And as we understand today, slavery's legacies that bleed through every form from white supremacy to de lynchings and police killings um, are living, breathing, To let alone economic prejudice and persecution. And so I think this the, the, your reflection is one that, that helps us see with the family that this idea of emancipation was a white supremacist myth that worked only to aggrandize white power and white privilege.
1: Well, I, I want to take a brief detour here and um, ask you about Douglas's UK connections and... Um, You've been working here in the University of Rochester's Department of Rare Books, um, I believe with a book of poems by Robert Burns, apparently one of the first books that Douglas uh, purchased, and it's inscribed and dedicated to his son, right? Can you talk about this? And um, for, maybe for listeners who don't know who Robert Burns is, What the significance uh, of this connection is?
2: Ah, Robert Burns for Frederick Douglass, yes. Um, So um, this is dear to my heart with curating with Dora Petherbridge and others at the National Library of Scotland, the Strike for Freedom, Douglass in Scotland, Mm -hmm. and this partly this collection material. Um, So Douglass goes on a UK tour at the age of 27 when he's on the run as a fugitive slave, as he would describe himself at that point. He's published his narrative, his name names, he's got to get out of the country. And so he lands on Irish soil and he tours Ireland and then he tours England and also Scotland and Wales. Now, in Scotland, as we all know, Mr. Douglas played the violin. And um, so what he had was terrible homesickness. And so some of the letters talk about that. And it's a bit quiet as it's kept. He doesn't talk extensively about it, again, protecting the private Douglas. Um, But he experiences terrible depression on a day in Edinburgh in the winter. And he talks about um, feeling, I look so ugly. I hated to see myself in the glass. There was no living for me. So he felt so suicidal and given how his renown is his great beauty and his power through imagery I felt so ugly I hated to see myself in the glass you see someone carrying a lot of wounds and trauma and so he walks down the street in Edinburgh and he goes to a music shop and he buys a violin and um, he brings it back to the hotel. Scurries back to the hotel with it, and he writes in this letter that starts out with trauma and upset, and says, "I felt as lively as a cricket and as happy as a lamb." that a person get music in their soul when they are depressed, and their whole world is changed. And one of the things that he learns to play is a Robbie Burns um, poem set to music. And um, he loved Robbie Burns, and he saw him as a poet of the people. And he went on a pilgrimage on the same trip to. The the home of Robbie Burns in Ayr, um, where we're going to do some events in the fall, and he met the sisters, and he talked about going to the cottage, and it was a, a kind of religious experience for him in many ways. He loved Robbie Burns for his spirit. Um, he saw Robbie Burns as connected to the folkloric spirit of Scotland, um, as distinct from England and the Empire. Scotland massively importantly a slave trading nation as well profiting from slave trading in the Caribbean um, and many other places but at the same time a ringing national rhetoric of anti-colonialism and anti-empire and so Douglas used to say on the stump in um, all the towns and cities in Scotland he used to say there's not a stream that doesn't flow the blood of freedom in a Scottish land and so Douglas loved the Robbie Burns celebration of Scotland and the nation and the myth and the folklore of. Scotland as a freedom-loving people. And as an older man playing his violin, he would endlessly play um, Burns' song set to music and um, loved them for how they spoke of freedom and social justice.
1: Well, as we begin to wrap up here, I want to circle back to the question of memory and memorialization. You've said that if Frederick Douglass were here today, he'd likely have no time for a birthday celebration, right? Can you flesh that out a little bit for us?
2: Yeah, um, so Mr. Douglas would would have no, indeed have no time for a birthday celebration. Um, He he always was um, quite playful. He he ranged in his relationship to his birthday, being playful, having it February 14th, um, not knowing the exact date, um, to being um, very um, psychologically down about it and very traumatized by it. Um, And so there were very few birthday celebrations that were formal for him during his lifetime. Um, But the family take their life into their hands and they have a big celebration for him for his 72nd birthday. And it's going beautifully well. And he's presented with flowers and he gets up to give a speech and he's very, very grateful. But then the Frederick Douglass of um, 1847 comes onto the podium and says, what does Frederick Douglass or any of us born into slavery have to do with a birth date? That was denied to us before we were part of this living breathing world and so um, his lack of knowledge of his birth date um, for Douglas was a quintessential summation of how slavery took everything from you as a person took away your family took away your genealogy took away your right to um, generational exchange and Frederick Jr um, his son is, there's no coincidence that in his the scrapbooks in Dr. Evans's collection, painfully, poignantly, upsettingly records the birth and death dates of the grandchildren in the Douglas family down to the very minute, not only the hour or the day, but the minute that they passed away. Um, And so the question of memorial and um, self-preservation with memorial was really important. And Douglas also had a political commitment. So a lot of people talk about Douglas and memory studies, and they're right to do that. But he also had a sense of the dangers of the wrong kinds of memory that you know memories of the civil war that talk about it as um, a a states rights um, navigation that deny completely the freedom struggle Mm -hmm. and he says that memory can unmake us as much as it can make us Mm -hmm. and so he talked about the dangers of forgetting but he also was very exercised about the political problem of a memory that is only in the service of white power and has nothing to do with all human rights and I think um, the biggest commitment we really have is trying to understand his philosophy of humanitarianism, which, um, as a fallible human being, at various points in his life, he would emphasize various parts of it, but committed throughout was a universalist sense of um, hate in all its guises only hates us more. And so. Um, Douglas is really about courage and compassion and love in his life, as as were all the family members, and really worked by a principle of anti-hate, and you see that despite terrible provocation, despite terrible... worry and pain about what that costs him, he stays unswervingly to this notion of light and love, the light and love of Annie Douglas. Love in all its guises, beautiful, painful, suffering and struggling.
1: Celeste Marie Bernier, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you. It's been a joy. I'm so grateful.
1: Celeste Marie Bernier is a professor of Black Studies and English Literature at the University of Edinburgh. Her new book is called If I Survive, Frederick Douglass and Family in the Walter O. Evans Collection. You're listening to Our Earnest Struggle. I'm Darian Lehman. For our last segment on today's show, we speak with Walter Evans, a retired surgeon whose private collection forms the basis for the new book, If I Survive, Frederick Douglass and Family. We spoke with Dr. Evans by phone back in October. Joining me from Savannah, Georgia, is Walter Evans. Dr. Evans, welcome to Our Earnest Struggle.
0: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: So over the last several decades, you've amassed a really important collection of visual art and literary works by major African-American figures of the 19th and 20th centuries. But could you start off by telling us, how did you first become interested in art?
0: Um, I wasn't fortunate enough to go to college right after high school. I went into the Navy, and in my second year of the Navy, I was transferred from San Diego to Philadelphia. Um, The first week I was in Philadelphia, I went to a party and I met a young lady. We decided that, uh, or she decided, I should say, that our first date would be to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I had never been in an art museum of my life. I was raised in my early years in Savannah, and as a teenager, I went to high school in Hartford, Connecticut. We weren't allowed in the museums, uh, art museums in Savannah, and when I got to Hartford, that just wasn't my interest. So uh, not knowing anything about art museums or art, I went to the library right down the street from the museum in Philadelphia. I read about all the artists and their works that I would see. So when we got to, on our date at the museum, I um, started telling her about all these painters. I started asking her if she knew Degas had a family in New Orleans that he sired, uh, African-American part of the family. So um, after I went to college, I continued to go to museums. But it wouldn't be until after I went to medical school and did my residency and started my practice that I had my first dollar to spend on any art. And that's where I started, about 1976.
1: So what was the first work of art that you bought? Or were there several?
0: Well, it just so happened that the Detroit Institute of Art owned the uh, John Brown series by Jacob Lawrence. And the they were in such horrible condition that they commissioned Jacob Lawrence to do um, silk screens on these very paintings. So they did uh, 60 sets of 22. And I was convinced to buy one of these sets, and that started me. Uh, A couple weeks later, uh, I happened to be in New York, and I met Romare Bearden. So, uh, you know, I got started on two of the most well-known African-American artists of the time.
1: Now, in the past, you've talked about the under-representation of African-American art and artists in these kinds of museum spaces. So, can you talk about that and what you see as the importance of your work as a collector in creating a kind of alternative cultural archive?
0: Well, first of all, let me say that I became interested in all of art. Uh, It's just that when I went into museums around the country, uh, I saw almost no African-American art. And by this time, I had twin daughters uh, who were born my first year of residency, And I wanted them to see works by African-Americans that they could not go into the museum and find. Uh, I did see one or two, uh, ironically, um, in uh, Europe, uh, a couple of European museums displayed works by African-Americans. And I had been reading about African-American artists, but saw almost none in the American Museum. So that was another impetus for me to begin uh, collecting African-American art.
1: So then how did you make the leap from paintings to historical documents? Or do you not see it really as so much of a leap?
0: I don't think it was a leap uh, in particular because I was interested in the culture in, of African-Americans. And that includes the art, the literature, the music, et cetera. So I actually started collecting um first edition books, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and um, Richard Wright and Langston Hughes. Because one thing, uh, as I mentioned, I went to school in the American South, and we had black instructors, uh, black everything. The schools were totally African-American segregated. But what they did do, and something I did not see when I got north, was um, the mention of African-American historical figures. Um, We had people like Mary McLeod Bethune and Langston Hughes come by our school in tiny Buford, South Carolina. Um, They came by and, and told us about themselves and told us about black history. When I got north, the only thing I saw in a school book or was taught by any teacher was that uh, one little line in our history book said, Lincoln freed the slaves, and that's it. Uh, so I was fortunate, in a sense, to go to schools in, a sou- in the South um, where I learned about black history and, and um, you know, including Carter Woodson, uh, who started Black History Month.
1: And presumably that exposure would also have included Frederick Douglass, right? Um, can you tell us how you came by these documents related to him and his family.
0: I can't tell you that it was he in particular that had my focus. I was focused on many um, and all uh, of the major African-American historical figures. It just so happened that at one point, about 30 years ago, most of these documents became available to me and I jumped on the chance. The dealer who's still... Uh, a dealer today, he deals mostly in African-American material, was located in Hamden, Connecticut, which is just adjacent to New Haven. And he had offered these uh, documents to Yale, and I he said that they haven't um, agreed to purchase them. So I said, well, look, uh, I'll give you one month. I'll give you a deposit, and if they haven't made a deal with you by then, then, you know, they're mine. So on the 30th day, I sent him the balance because I knew Yale would not purchase those materials at that time. Uh, I think they regret that decision. I know the folks at the Bionicate today, so I know for a fact that uh, they would love to have these, uh, this material in their collections today.
1: Could you describe one or two of these documents related to the Douglas family, one that captures your imagination in particular, maybe?
0: It's a voluminous amount, much more than what you will see in Celeste's book, but when Douglas was he was born in eighteen eighteen, he escaped in eighteen thirty eight and I think it was about eighteen forty one that he gave a talk in Nantucket at the Nantucket Anthenaeum. He would have had to take a boat over as you still have to do today, and in the audience was a fellow by the name of William Lloyd Garrison and William Lloyd Garrison was just fascinated by this uh escaped slave. He was an abolitionist of course and he put him on the speaking circuit and uh um, Douglas became quite well known because of that. Well, um Douglas went abroad to Europe in 1845 after his book was published because you know he knew that his former slave owners uh would be coming after him at that point. When he got back, there was a little bit of friction between Douglas and Garrison. So that's when Douglas uh, decided he would move to Rochester. When Garrison died, his widow came to Douglas and asked him to, if he would deliver the eulogy. Now, this eulogy has been printed up and I have a printed copy, but I also have the original manuscript in Douglas's hand. So that's, that's, uh, I think that's, um, an extremely important document, and that is in Celeste's book, by the way. It's important from the fact that even though Garrison and Douglas may have differed on the way African-American slaves should be freed, it it points out that they respected each other, and I think that's important.
1: So, Dr. Evans, I'm wondering how you first connected with Celeste Marie Bernier, and can you talk about the decision to make the documents in your collection available in her new book, If I Survive, published through Edinburgh University Press this year?
0: Well, um, about 10, 12 years ago, I was at a conference or, or a lecture given by David Blight, and I think he was talking about Frederick Douglass. So after the lecture was over, I went up to him and I told him that I had a few documents uh, on Douglas, and he asked me, what were they? And I said, why don't you come by the house? And he did. And, of course, he was floored. And it was at that point that he decided to write another book uh, on Douglas. And his book is coming out about now also. But um, it was through David that I got to meet so many other scholars. I allowed all of them to, um, to resource the material to publish whatever they wanted to. And that's how Celeste and I met. Celeste, you know, saw this as something that needed to be published. And, of course, I agreed to it. I I want the materials to be shared with the public. Of course, she is she's one of the greatest speakers and lecturers and writers that I've ever met, and I've met quite a few.
1: Now, do you see a tension between you know, the need to preserve rare historic documents on the one hand and the need to share them and make them accessible to the wider public. Um, And in your case as a collector, how have you tried to strike that balance?
0: Well, um, I I want the public to be able to know what um, I didn't know, you know, or could not have known and what most people don't know. And throughout my career as a collector. I've always shared work, loaning to museums. At any one time now, I have more than 150 to 200 items out on loan. And upon my demise, um, I have taken care of that as well in that I have established a foundation, the Walter Evans Foundation for Art and Literature. So everything I have in my art and book collection will go to the foundation. Now, (laughs) my survivors will have to decide what happens from then on, whether it will go to museums or libraries or depositories, uh, it's, that will be up to them. But what I don't want to happen, though, is for this to be broken up and go to several different places. I, I want it all to go in one in one place.
1: Finally, I wanted to ask you, do you think we've seen substantial progress toward correcting some of these silences in the historical and institutional records that you talked about today? Erasure of African American history in textbooks, the absence of works by African American artists in museums of fine art. Has there been progress on this front from your perspective?
0: Oh, absolutely, um, all over the country and abroad. Uh, there, there's no question about that. Uh, I mean, you know, I lived for about thirty years in Detroit, and far more than half of those thirty years, um, you know, the Detroit Institute of Art wasn't interested in having anything to do with what I was doing in Detroit. But that changed. That has changed dramatically. Um, I I can't say that it's changed enough, um, but the interest is definitely there like never before now.
1: Dr. Walter Evans, thank you for taking the time to talk with us.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Walter Evans is a private collector of African-American art and literature. His collection forms the basis for the new book, If I Survive, Frederick Douglass and Family, published just this fall by the Edinburgh University Press. And that does it for this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. Special thanks to Celeste Marie Bernier, Walter Evans, and Jennifer Keiker. You can catch up on any episodes you missed on demand on our Mixcloud page. Go to mixcloud.com slash our earnest struggle. The views expressed on this show don't necessarily reflect the views of the City of Rochester or the partnering organizations of the Re-Energizing Douglas Bicentennial Committee. If you'd like to be a part of future episodes, send us an email at wxirnews@gmail.com. at gmail.com. For Rochester's Community Media Center, I'm Darian Lehman. Thanks for listening.